So welcome to Manifesto. This is another um, another episode where we'll be talking about Israel and Palestine. Um, we'll be back to the more normal episodes um, in the coming months, but it felt like we needed to do another episode on this conflict. I, I recorded a, this conversation, the last episode we put out with Jake, on Friday, uh, right before things intensified. And, you know, it was good speaking to Jake. I hadn't really spoken to him since before October 7th. And, you know, he gave the, you know, as he described it, the, the American Jew living in Israel and as a partisan of Israel, they're not necessarily somebody who supported the Netanyahu government or their current strategy. You know, if you can if you can really call it a strategy. But as we discussed things, and, and especially after the conversation was done, I felt like something was terribly absent in this conversation. And, and that's something that I feel almost constantly. Anytime I say anything about this, I feel sort of stupefied by the horror of it. And to point out any strong moral intuitions about one thing that happens, it feels like there are other things that are disastrously absent. And the other thing that I felt was, you know, we spoke at a remove. And um, when we talked about what a ground invasion might look like, we talked about military doctrine um, and all sorts of things that I think are useful. We didn't even talk about what the experience of an Israeli soldier might be in such a brutal environment, and certainly not the experience of a Gazan civilian. And so then I saw... Philip Metris, a poet that I've known for a long time, posted this poem of his called, he posted, Remorse for Temperate Speech, for Musab Abu Toha, who lost 30 family members to bombings in Gaza last week. And he posted that on October 17th, 2023. And I felt indicted, usefully, by the poem. I first encountered... Philip Metris actually through a conversation that he had, it might've been in the Los Angeles review of books where he was having a discussion with another writer um, who were accusing my work of not paying enough attention to the Iraqi victims of the Iraq war. So here we are again, Philip. And Is it my role to indict you, Phil? <laughs> it's your role to indict me. <laughs> I hope not. <laughs> It's a good thing. It's a good thing, Phil. Um, he's a really uh, fantastic poet and translator whose work often deals with Palestine and Israel and incorporates documentary and archival evidence into the work, which doesn't just sort of look at the current conflict, but also the history, the communities that existed beforehand and um, the kind of architecture of that loss and the sort of organic things, the organic kind of life world that uh, has been deformed or destroyed by violence and dispossession. So, Philip, thank you for coming on. Thanks, Phil. Thanks for having me. And um, I appreciate the opportunity to have a conversation about this. 
Um, there's so, so much screaming going on right now. Yeah. <laughs> it's hard really to, to create a space just for maybe a little bit more um, dialogue, I suppose. Do you want to read Remorse for Tempered Speech for us? Sure. This is Remorse for Temperate Speech uh, for Varad Salah and Musab Abu Toha. For I spoke as if I knew to you who know how a house looks clothed in flames from the inside, you sitting in the smoke as if watching my prose only stoke the flames in that stagnant room among stagnant rooms where the powerful talk for your people bound in the margins of empire's book who speak and speak and speak and pretend to listen. May you find the wadi where water flows into future and greet what has come before where you did not know you knew before the unmapped hidden wadi where past and future meet. Thank you. Um, yeah, one of the reasons that I wanted to talk about that poem specifically is because it's talking about the position of of a Western observer, right? You know, um, and you know, you have a connection to this region, right? Sure. Um, yeah, but. It's, it's the position of somebody looking from the outside. And I think that one of the things that is strange about this conflict is there is a depth of history and this kind of complex array of claims and counterclaims and, and um, it quickly becomes very, very complicated, right? Where people feel ugly out of their depth and approaching it. And at the same time, there are things of intense and immediate moral urgency that you don't need any history to, to respond to, right? Or shouldn't. Um, and they seem to call for somebody to sort of scream out at top volume. Yeah. Um, and also, it's, it might be a conflict in a place that many Americans have a limited or a thin understanding of, or a, or a blinkered understanding of, um, but which we're intimately, intimately involved in, right? And, totally. Yeah. Uh, financially, militarily, and in a whole host of ways. Sure. Could you talk about the the sort of genesis of that poem? Sure. I, I, absolutely. And I think I should probably just. Um, just announce a little bit of my positionality relative to all this. And it, it's yeah. kind of embedded in the poem as well, but um, I'm a third generation Arab American. My dad's family's from Lebanon. They were exiled a long time ago, um, but I got really interested in the situation in Palestine and Israel because my sister went to Birzeit university in the early 1990s when the Intifada was happening yeah. And she spent a summer there becoming radicalized by her experience of watching what Palestinians were enduring. And then 10 years after that, she married a Palestinian and I went to, to the wedding in West Bank. Um, 
And I think you know, had one maps you talk about not necessarily believing what she was saying at first. Yeah. Oh, for sure, for sure, right? I mean, because um, it it's hard to you know just immersed in our culture and the ways in which we've been um, immersed in a kind of Orientalism uh, about a situation, and also you know the the very real concerns around anti-Semitism and the need for Jewish safety and security after the genocide of the Holocaust. Um, it was hard for me to imagine such things happening. You know, I think probably in retrospect, of course, a people that's been genocided might have some particularly um, uh, fearsome ways of dealing with their own precarity after that. In any case, um, this particular poem was written actually after I'd published Shrapnel Maps, after I'd sort of been working through that. And I had two, had had two conversations. I was in American University of Beirut and I was speaking with some students there in a class uh, about my work. And one of them was Palestinian. And I just remember sort of articulating or laying out kind of the argument of the book, which is an attempt to take a contrapuntal view of the land, of the place, you know, as it's called, you know, right. uh, Palestine and Israel. And I was aware coming away from that conversation that I was doing some, I don't know, American splaining. Do you know what I mean? Like yeah. that, uh, that I think, and this is the thing we cannot understand is that Palestinians do not view Israel as an exceptional state. And most of the world doesn't view it as an exception. They view it as part of a, uh, you know, a system or an operation of colonialism. Mm -hmm. And they simply do not see it through the lens that people from the West do, which is, is this kind of like um, recompense for the genocide of the Holocaust. And it's just very difficult for us to imagine what it's like not to see it through that lens. Um, so I had that conversation and then I'd had uh, a series of conversations during the pandemic with Mossab Abutoha, who is a resident of Gaza. Um, he recently got his MFA. I think he's finished at this point at Syracuse, but he's back there now. And um, we had had these conversations with a series of poets, um, a couple Jewish poets and a couple Arab poets, just exchanging letters. It was Naomi Shihab Nye, Mossab Abatoha, uh, Connor Bracken, Erica Meitner, and a poet um, in Israel. Um, bless her, I'm forgetting her name, I'm sorry. Um, in any case, um, we, we just had this really interesting interchange over the course of the months in the pandemic, experience a kind of common global precarity and Mossab actually saying, you know, now you kind of know what it's like, you know, to be locked down. Um, and this really in interesting interchange between himself, between him and um, Rahel ne me Nev Midbar, who was the Israeli poet, in which they express, she expressed her sorrow about what was happening and um, really kind of almost apologizing. And it was a beautiful, incredible thing. But I just kept having that feeling that um, in the process of my interchanges with him, that there was something I couldn't understand. And that that's what spurred the poem on. And so when this started happening, and I don't know if you follow him on Facebook, but he's been 
posting regularly just about his, you know, the fact that 30 of, at least 30 of his family members have been killed in Israeli bombings, that, um, that this is something that, you know, we who've never been under bombs can't quite understand. Um, and so, yeah, uh, I, I also, the other thing I would just say about context is that one of the most excoriating critiques of shrapnel maps was by a Palestinian American poet who called it an imperialist book. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, he said because it was something about the level of distance that it that it, it was somehow able to or uh, attempting to imagine or uh, to listen to sort of all of these different perspectives, you know, whether it was a Zionist in my neighborhood or, you know, Mossab or, you know, somebody else. And he just felt that that this is something that you could only do from a certain distance and that that distance was not an ethical distance, actually. And so... And this poem is actually partly responding to that also. Is there a way in which my listening is partial, that is, that is pretense, that is not uh, real? So. I mean, so this is, this is one of the things that <clears throat> makes this very difficult because, <clears throat> well, first off, my, my impulse is always to sort of listen, sort of try and like put myself in a headspace where I'm like agreeing with the other person while I'm listening to them, while I'm in conversation with them. Sometimes, you know, uh, pushing back or holding reservations, but sort of genuinely trying to, to understand that and then moving on to another perspective. And it feels like there is a, well, no, there's definitely a desire to pick a side, which also means picking, picking what horrors you care about. Right. You know, yeah. when I, when I, um, mentioned to Jake that I was going to be talking to you, he asked me to ask you, um, about this CNN interview, uh, that, that you had sort of posted between Mustafa Barghouti, leader of the Palestinian National Initiative, and Fareed Zakaria, right? And it was, you know, the was you reposting somebody who said, like, this is a must-watch interview. It's amazing that, that CNN aired it. And it's Barghouti, you know, explaining his perspective on the context, on uh, um, Israeli settler terrorist attacks on Palestinians, uh, the number of Palestinians, including children killed by the Israeli army, and so on. And then at, uh, you know, I think it's like the second or third question in the interview is about Hamas's tactics. And Barghouti says, I think Hamas may, you know, mainly attacked military establishments, military installations, and most of the people there they have arrested and taken as war prisoners are military people, right? And I, um, there's a, there's a line from Orwell he says the nationalist not only does not disapprove of atrocities committed by his own side, but he has a remarkable capacity for not even hearing about them. Right. Right. And, you know, one way of, of, of dealing with these things is just not seeing them. Right. 
you know, uh, I was listening to the commentary podcast and John Podhoritz said something along the lines of, you know, they're going to accuse Israel of war crimes, but they need to um, ignore that because the greatest war crime of all is the attempted elimination of the Jewish people, right? Mm. And it is um, this feeling that if you talk about the one set of victims, right? Um, You are obscuring what another side thinks is the more important set of victims or, you know, how much weight should we give to which victims and and so on. And, um, you know, the kind of more sophisticated version of what that leader of the Palestinian initiative was doing was done in the pages of dissent by Gabriel Weinert, where he said, you know, um, Israeli deaths are grist, propaganda grist for the Israeli Defense Force military machine. So we should consider them pre-grieved, right? And, um, right. So did he use the term weaponize, weaponizing of grief, that that's part of the mechanism? Of, so this, I mean, this is what, yeah, yeah this yeah. is what he's concerned with. And so anyway, I wanted to ask you about you, uh, since Jake asked me to ask you posting that and, and just what, what you think about that, um, that sort of stark choice that people are being asked, right? You know, because it's, it's not just operate at a high pitch, a high emotional pitch, right? That the only kind of, honest response to horrors of the magnitude that we're talking about. And I mean, just, you know, think about, well, I'll put it this way. When I was in Mosul in 2019, right, there was a campaign to take Mosul back from ISIS, right, destroy ISIS. And, um, which is, some people are comparing, you know, the two, when I compared the two in, uh, in, in, in the last episode, there are also sort of very important differences, right? Mosul, the center of Mosul had massive structural damage. I think about 10,000 civilians were killed. This wow. campaign looks like it's going to far exceed that. Um, and I was talking to this uh, Muslawi father about just being trapped, right, in in a city under siege. Now, um, you know, ISIS sort of held people, held people there. Um, you know, he said, you know, we were trapped, we ate cats, we ate rats. There were days, you know, somebody's children, there were days when they were so hungry and there was shelling and shooting and I just wanted to rescue them, right? Mm-hmm. And, and he couldn't. He was there in a city of perpetual fear just day after day, week after week in terror as bombs are going around all around them and knowing that as much as he loves his children he cannot he can't save them he can't do anything and that is the experience of just being multiplied right Right. um and anyway i've been sorry talking like which you know it's like you're supposed to speak at an intense volume about horror but that also seems to mean picking the horrors that you choose to talk about. Right. No, I appreciate Jake's 
pointing that out because it's a it's a real problem we're having right now. Um, I I, re- I just read another piece by Ali Abunima uh, doing another kind of analysis of the the casualties on the Israeli side and pointing out that X percent uh, were military, etc. And um, and then all those stories about the 40 beheaded babies or no, that was that was propaganda. That was military disinformation on the Israeli side. And then I'm thinking, like, why are we arguing about, uh, you know, whether or not 40 babies were beheaded when we know from video now evidence right. that there were atrocities um, which are horrific and um, which you know, scrape the bottom of, uh, you know, the abyss of human cruelty. Um, and the fact, as you say, that, that, you know, a lot of pro-Palestinian sources, you know, wanted not to dwell on those things or, or actively, you know, fight them as disinformation, as, mm-hmm. you know, uh, weaponizing a certain kind of grief. Um, I thought that Adam Schatz's piece in the London Review of Books was interesting insofar as he talked about a kind of two phases of the Hamas uh, attack, the um, Operation Flood, I think is what they call it. Um, The first of which was this this incursion, you know, this um, really surprising surprise attack. And uh, and the the plan was to attack military targets and to you know get a bunch of hostages. But when they fe- when they experienced no resistance, the a couple things happened. One is I think people you know those fighters just were kind of let loose off script, and and there were other fighters that that followed them because once the gates were knocked down, all of a sudden all these people you know were part of this thing, and so. The second phase was the atrocity phase. If the first phase was the sort of attack of the military installations, breaking down the gates, you know, uh, this incursion, the second phase was this uh, massacre. Um, and I think one of the weird things that we can't understand as, uh, as Americans is what it may have felt like for a Palestinian, particularly Palestinian Gaza, to see those walls knocked down and to see Palestinian agency in those fighters for the first time in some of their, their lifetimes actually um, defy their conditions of absolute subjugation, absolute oppression, absolute uh, entrapment. And to there was a kind of elation to see, for example, that, that, damnable Rafa crossing broken down where Palestinians have for, you know, 15 years been waiting for hours to get any movement at all. Just to see it knocked down was a euphoric um, reaction for people there. But the other side of that, right. And as we know, Rafa Rafa crossing is the one into Egypt though. Oh, I'm sorry. The other one. Right. Sorry. I'm sorry. Right. The Eretz, sorry. Eretz crossing. Right. Um, and, but we know how human beings are, and we know that uh, when you know someone who has experienced and you know and probably been you know been part of a narrative where the other side is you know 
perpetrating evil upon you, then evil <laughs> is sometimes is dumb, you know, in response. And I am, there's no way I would ever say to you that I justify that I'm a pacifist. I'm a nonviolent person, but I guess what I'm trying to do is um, establish. There's, 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 there's a the difference horror. between talking, I think about the conditions that lead someone to, <clears throat> um, try to understand the support that an organization has, right? So like, you know, if I was trying to talk about like what <clears throat> I met with um, women who had been kept as slaves by ISIS in Sinjar, right? And if you want to talk about the primary explanation for why these women were, whose families were murdered, were then taken as captives, in a genocide of Yazidis, um, the primary explanation is human evil, right? If you want to understand why a group like ISIS, a group of such evil was able to exist, and you want to talk about it in the sort of way where you think, how can we create conditions where groups like that are less likely to gain support? You have to talk about a lot of other things. Right? You have to talk about the chaos in the wake of the American invasion. You need to talk about, you need to talk about international factors. You need to talk about, um, you need to talk about Iran's influence in, in the Iraqi sort of civil war and also political process. You need to talk sure. about the American role. You need to talk right. about violence and instability and chaos and political dispossession, right? <laughs> And I think it's difficult because to say those sorts of things, look, in the case of the Zidi um, massacre, genocide, you're talking about, it's fairly easy to, to sort of disconnect those things, right? Um, uh, and I think that the temptation is for a group like... Um, like Hamas, the, the, the state that people feel is oppressing them is the Israeli state. And then Hamas's actions are directed both towards the Israeli state and towards Jews, right? And their, um, you know, rhetoric and aspirations are genocidal. Um, and yet, nevertheless, it's, um, you know, if you talk about if you talk about the sense of liberation that somebody might feel seeing those, uh, those the, that border crossing cross through, I think you can understand how that feeling exists for reasons that are entirely human and understandable, and also how it leads to absolute horror. Um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't, I, I don't want to be put in a position of uh the hamas apologist because that's that's not where i that's not where i stand um and that's not my ideology um you know and and one of the the really painful difficult things about this sort of these sorts of conversations is you know the whataboutism which is like right. well you know we we could talk about the fact that israel 
you know, helped fund Hamas as a kind of uh, alternative to uh, the PLO. We could talk about the fact that they changed their charter from the genocidal anti-Semitic charter in 2017. They talked about um, agreeing to a two-state solution. Um, so there's all this. I, I think one of the things that's difficult about conversations about evil and about things like that is that we miss a lot of particulars along the way. Mm-hmm. And um, I think that the hardest thing to watch as someone who wants a just peace and who's been, you know, doing what I can to raise my voice for for 30 years, 25 to 30 years on this, is that um, this kind of violence ruptures lots of uh, goodwill and possible yeah. trust. And seems to, to, to make, um, make any kind of future, shared future, um, push far, far into the future. I mean, it could, it, that it could, there could be another way that, that, that a kind of precipice moment is an opportunity to reinvest in, to really see all of the, the ways in which we don't want this to go. Um, yeah. What, what, I mean, what future is there for Gazans? even, you know, with Hamas in control, right? And what future is there for Gazans with a Israeli government of the sort that we have right now? You know, I, I posted this, uh, this thing in which I said that one of the things that kind of, you know, really um, disheartens me is the way in which it, it, it appears that a, that hard right wing government like the Netanyahu government and Hamas are kind of like uh, dance partners in a uh, in a, a dance of death, which for which only the the extremists and the arms manufacturers benefit. And um, they, they'll happily engage in this dance uh, because they find the other necessary. Yeah, I mean, you know, one of the horrifying things watching this all play out is as like somebody who's spent, you know, decades writing and thinking about the global war on terror is when there's an attack of the sort, like what Hamas did. Right. And, 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 you know, the horror of that, the unbelievable shock to the system of that and the, intense desire for you know the the feeling among israelis i'm sure is we cannot live with hamas next door this is a genocidal organization that is going to as long as they're there continue to amass firepower and if we ever slip up then the thing that happens when we slip up is um horror of extreme magnitude um, and that gives a, a kind of political backing to what the leader wants to do. And I think both in America, 9-11, um, and I think to a more extreme extent, actually in, in Israel, you have a leader who is unsuited for the moment, uh, to put it mildly, right? Unsuited in terms of competence and unsuited in terms of vision and unsuited in terms of morals. Um, and you know, the choices that that government makes are not going to be 
restricted to uh, Gaza. The head of the Shin Bet just warned that settler violence has been a spate of settler violence in, in the West Bank against Palestinians, and that could lead to a sort of more general revolt among Palestinians in the West Bank. Um, this is followed in the north. There is um, a whole host of other countries that are looking in, um, that are horrified and disgusted and by what's happening. And, and you can accuse them of, of rank hypocrisy, right? Uh, in many cases, right? You know, I, sure, like uh, China is conducting its, uh, its, you know, like a genocide of the Uyghurs right now. Uh, right. Nonetheless, uh, that's simply the, you know, whether there's hypocrisy or not, that's simply the reality. And there's just, you know, there's sort of attacks against U.S. installations all over the, all over the place. It, it, this can very easily spiral out into yeah. um, not just an existentially dangerous situation for Israel, right? Not just a uh, horror of extreme magnitude for the Palestinian population, um, uh, but have much wider effects as well. And, and you know, whether that happens, a lot of it's dependent upon, you know, the decisions of a government that has <laughs> made short-sighted, amoral, um, immoral, um, and incompetent decisions. And there's no reason, I mean, and, and just the rhetoric coming from, from the government right now is horrifying. Um, yeah. so it's just like, there are horrors right now, and I'm watching this thinking, what is to come? What is to come? Right. I, one of the things that it makes me think about is what is the ethical response to our own precarity? And nation states have always acted as, you know, it appears that <laughs> Israel is going to ask, act to punish, you know, uh, you know, a civilian population largely a civilian population in Gaza um, for the actions of its um, purported leaders. Um, you know, there are other ways we can respond to precarity. You know what I mean? It's um, it, my laughter is, uh, is from a sense of uh, the impossibility of the situation and my deep heartbreak to be totally honest. And this thing you mentioned earlier on um, about the, 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 father who couldn't protect his children kind of gets to me why this has been so hard for me personally. And I'm sure for you and probably for everyone else is this sense, like how, how is it possible that we can't protect our own children from this uh, enormous cruelty and the, the ghosts of the past and, and present, um, and I'm sure the same thing is, is being felt by, uh, you know, Israeli uh, parents and um, Palestinian parents right now, this absolute helplessness and um, devastating, really devastating helplessness. And out of that experience of helplessness, helplessness is this kind of, uh, you know, this other thing, which is that 
we this helplessness will never happen to us again because I am going to destroy you. Right. Um, I, I just saw a photo that was posted by a friend who's a Palestinian Christian. I happen to know a guy who does a lot with the Palestinian Christians in Gaza, which is a small community. Yeah. And there was an image of the church and the iconostasis um, in, at the front of the church um, was surrounded by, you know, the, the sort of the baptismal font was surrounded by people. It was a huge crowd of people in there. And the story was that everyone was rushing to have their child uh, baptized in case they die. Yeah. Um, and so the thing about this, it's not a conflict between two peoples, of course. It's a conflict it, uh, between two peoples who have in living memory um, uh, experiences of genocide and um, fears of total genocide. And that amplifies the stakes considerably. Right. It's not like the Mexican war or something, the U.S.-Mexican war of 1840 or something like that, which it was, you know, of course there was precarity. Of course there was, uh, you know, dispute and things like that. But it, it wasn't at the scale of, you know, my people are going to be or are currently being genocided. Right. Yeah. To the Israelis, it's like you want us to have a ceasefire with Hamas, like Hamas used the past couple of years of a seeming thaw to uh, plan this operation. Right. Yeah. And um, and there can be any kind of agreement with them is fundamentally meaningless. Um, and then, well, let's talk about the Palestinian, I think. I wanted to talk a little bit about returning to Jaffa, which is a part of Shrapnel Map. So you also published it as a standalone and, and kind of extraordinarily beautiful book. Um, and uh, because it is in many ways about not the kind of issue of not so much the issue of the, the current conflict, which other parts of, of shrapnel maps are more directly about, but this kind of older world that was destroyed. And you begin with, you know, there are postcards come to Palestine, um, uh, sort of uh, all this sort of documentary stuff. And then this opening poem where you have Nahida Speaking back then, we lived as though the Bible happened yesterday. I'd fall asleep to the lighthouse sweeping across our windows, a constant comfort from the explosions. I saw a man carrying a coffin lid like a shield, the shuffle of their feet, the only sound. In the coffin, a clean-shaven man in charcoal gray suit, as if dressed for a wedding. If you do not want the same thing to happen to you as happened in Deir Yassin, we heard the loudspeakers say, then you will flee. Our bags packed, we drove past houses in flames, houses and houses and houses in flames. Without those documents, I could never prove that I lived there, that this house was mine and this life was mine. And I wanted you to talk about um, that relationship that people have to the land that they're from, I guess. Yeah. So this story is based on a relationship I've had with um, an older woman from Jaffa, from Jaffa. Uh, Nahida Halabi Gordon, 
I heard her speak some years ago at a library and was absolutely taken with her story. Um, she is part of the diaspora. Her family was made refugees in 1948. They fled um, Jaffa because of things that were happening there, the violence that was happening there. Um, so I think one of the things I would just say about that is that the reason why Palestinians are calling what's happening a genocide goes back to 1947, 1948, mm -hmm. um, goes back to what happened in places like Jaffa. Um, so one of the things that was most affecting to me about her story was the fact that she had all of this evidence for the plan extirpation of the planned dispossession of Palestinians, particularly from Jaffa, which was the biggest city, Arab majority city in historic Palestine, the mandate of Palestine, what would become Israel at that time. Obviously, Tel Aviv was bigger with all the huge influx of refugees and uh, uh, Jerusalem. But Jaffa was a big, uh, you know, relatively big and highly developed city. And yet you have these documents like the Haganah's instructions to the Arab population to uh, gather all the males at a certain place at a certain time to uh, make sure that all of the uh, municipal documents are uh, kept intact for mm -hmm. for future, you know, uh, for future use. Instructions um, to the Arab population by the commander of the Haganah Tel Aviv district given on 13th May 1948, whereas your representative signed an agreement today, I hereby direct as follows, any shot fired at a Jewish area or at a Jew or at any member of the Haganah or any resistance to them will be for sufficient reason to the Haganah to open fire at the offender, all arms, et cetera, and sort of goes on. Sure, sure. Yeah. Any male right. who leave may apply to my representative for a permit to do so. Likewise, any male Arab who left Jaffa and who wishes to return may apply for a permit to do so, and so on. Yeah. Right. Um, so this document, you know, which ironically enough is in English because uh, the mandate was governed in English. This was in English as well. Um, mentions this municipal archive, which you know, if you dig around at all in which this book explores the municipal archive, which establishes Palestinian residency in Jaffa was destroyed or removed. Mm -hmm. um, and I think what's so important about that for me as a person trying to understand what's happening is that a lot of people will say, well, there was a war and the Arabs lost and that's the end of the story. You lose the war and that's it. Uh, but that war, the war was that was declared by the, the, the six neighboring Arab states was declared after the declaration of the state of Israel, right? Which would have been, or, you know, May 15, 1948, if memory serves, um, that what was happening between November of 47 and May of 48 was the mass... Uh, um, pressure to upon uh upon these villages to to flee and so there are massacres that happen in in places like Dar Yassin and 
places like Jaffa where people fl would flee, had fled. Um, so most of the refugees happened even before this quote unquote war was actually declared, which is, I, I think, it, just an important historical fact. And so what Palestinians call Nakba, the catastrophe, has everything to do with that moment, you know. Um, you know, of course, you can go back further. You could talk about Balfour and, and British uh, complicity in that as well. But but it's just so weird, you know, to have met someone who kind of went through all of that. Mm -hmm. And that, in fact, Mossab Abu Toha, who we talked about earlier, his grandfather is from Jaffa as well. Most of the Jaffa inhabitants went to Gaza mm. because she didn't go to Gaza because she was a part of a wealthier class. They went north to Lebanon, wound up in the United States. But most of the inhabitants of Jaffa who fled are their, you know, descendants are Gaza in Gaza. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I don't know. I could read a poem or two from this, or we could talk more about that. Um, well, maybe, but I think the yeah. thing that we in the West do not understand is what happened in 1947 and 1948 and why that is such a, like the prism of pain through which Palestinians view everything has everything to do with that. And I think the number one reason why um, Arafat got cold feet in 2000 for this peace deal was not about those details really, but was about the right of return was about had he brought along, had he been able to represent the needs and rights of the refugees. Um, and I think that, I suspect that that is the primary reason. We could talk about other like little niggling um, things about the uh, the 2000, attempted 2000 agreement. But I, I think that the one that makes the most sense to me is that he realized that they were foregoing the right of return. And I know that there's actually been a lot of backdoor conversations about, can we, you know, have a symbolic right of return mm -hmm. where the, there's an acknowledgement of the right of return without necessarily materializing it in a, in a sense that would, you know, change obviously the demographic of the state of Israel. So um, anyway, that that's just some thoughts. I don't know if this. Well, maybe, you know. maybe you could read Ode to the Oranges of Jaffa. Okay. Does that make sense? Or, I mean, you can read anything you like. Um, sure, sure. I don't, I don't care. Um, so this is Ode to the Oranges of Jaffa, the epigraph from Nehida Halaby Gordon. My father used to buy the ones too large to ship. We'd scoop the insides and eat it and then make jack-o'-lanterns out of them. For your oval and thick-peeled, easy to remove. For your seedless and tough-skinned and suitable for export. For your juice starts sweet, then runs bitter. For naranj comes from Sanskrit, meaning fruit-like elephants. Memory, the earth you come from, and perfume the whole city when wind pages through your leaves. For by 1845, 38 million shipped to farther shores. Then symbol of Arab-Jewish cooperation before the war. Then orange engine of the new Israel. For the last Jew to grow them now says, to cut the orchard down would be to cut out my heart. Hmm. 
I, when I when I just you know started doing some research about these oranges because Nahida mentioned them, it was just strange to see how uh, the oranges themselves kind of play a role throughout history. Um, there, you know, that there was a moment, of course, in the 19th century and early 20th century when the orange was like one of the principal yeah. uh, exportable crops and you know parts of the wealth of that place and grown then, by Jews and Arabs alike. Right, right, and then you know, post uh, 1948, it was one of the, as it, as it says here, the one of the engines of the, the the new economy that was developing and growing, and then recently, you know, I think there's a whole documentary about the oranges of Jaffa, um, where this quote probably was taken from, uh, where those orchards are largely gone, and um, uh, so the sense of, right, the sense of attachment to land is so pervasive in uh, Palestine, in the Palestinian imagination, as I understand it. Um, and even Gaza, you know, whole neighborhoods were sort of organized as if they were neighborhoods in the places that they came from. Yeah. Um, and uh, this, so much of it is a, uh, both an experienced and then a, a remembered um, a passed down memory of, of, of land um, and oftentimes of a place that isn't there anymore. Yeah. There's a, there's a, one of the poems, I think it's, I don't think it's in Return to Jaff. I think it's another section of, uh, shrapnel maps where the speaker is talking about how, I think when his son was married or born, he, he had built a staircase and put bottles of wine into the staircase. And then years later, right. back and the staircase isn't even there anymore. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. Is... I, yeah. I, I like that that poem in part because it's, you know, I mean, so much of this is about uprooting, right? Right. And one of the things that uh, I think is very, you know, if you have a population that is, where that is a kind of intense and primal memory, um, the fear now is, is of another uprooting of not being able to return, of course, even already, I'm, I, I don't know if you saw, there's uh, aerial photographs of the bombing devastation in, in Gaza right now. And there's some neighborhoods that are just flattened. Um, and, and of course, there are elements of the Israeli government that have, have been quite upfront about the desire to just sort of use the settlement movement to steadily just push the Arabs out. Um, and that, you know, that is driving fears of what, you know, what happens if we leave and can we even leave? Right. Yeah. And so one of the reasons why Egypt probably has two reasons why it's not allowing Palestinians to leave. One of which is they fear the Muslim Brotherhood and, you know, Hamas. And the other is uh, they don't want uh, you know, and Palestinians don't want and why some Palestinians in Gaza say they won't even leave their houses because um, they know what happened before. Yeah. Right. And so this really does bring up 1948 in a very direct way. Um, and that's why people, the, the, you know, people are calling this a genocide. I, I feel like I'm totally out of my element discussing things like that. But yeah. um, what I, what I would say is that, you know, we, we brought that up with, with Jake and I, 
I emotionally understand why people are doing it. I think that it something can be horrible and, and, and that can be not the right term for it, but I think that a forced displacement of people seems to be clearly going on, right? Um, and uh, yeah, it feels like, um, I don't know, it, when the when the the term gets gets thrown around, I feel like it, you get into terminological debates, and I think it's it's enough to describe what is actually happening, right? Um, yeah, yeah. I, maybe it, maybe that's a way of talking about it that it's a shorthand for saying what is unfolding um, could be far uh, even far worse than 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 what we're seeing right now. Yeah, and and one of the things that it's sort of like, well, why can't people just leave? Why can't they just go to another place? Why can't they just, you know, why can't other Arab nations take them in? And I think, and again, that's why I wanted you to read that. There's that assumes that 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 the Palestinians, unlike other people, have no attachment to their homes, to their land, have no, um, you know, are not meaningfully formed in communities from which they draw, you know. Um, a sense of themselves and their purpose and their identity, which is deeply meaningful to them. And, you know, I mean, it's a totally absurd thing to say. Right. Why don't they just leave? And that, that poem is about a community that was, was diverse. Right. Um, and that no longer exists in the way that it did. Right. 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 Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, the, the other thing I would just say about this this thing around uh, the conversation around genocide is it's very hard to talk about the way in which the this Nakba, um, which I think is kind of the equation point here with this term, has been an ongoing, like from a certain proximity, um, and th this is the thing where his, where kind of history and distance becomes a little bit difficult or problematic, but certainly since 1948 and, and in an accelerated way since 1967, when Israel uh, won the June 1967 war, which led to the occup military occupation of Gaza and the West Bank. And, 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 and the building of the first settlement. Right. The settlement movement and the sort of uh, messianic uh, messianic Zionism, um, which believed that the greater Israel could be established, really took took force and root, and was aided and abetted by both labor and Likud governments for, and has been for 56, or whatever it is now, 56 years. Um, and uh, so this kind of slow motion dispossession, like a bomb so slow and so quiet that nobody can see it has been going off for at least 56 years, or if we want to say 75 years. And that's the thing, that violence, which is um, often based on law and policy and practice, is something that it's really hard for us to account for. The event of October 7th, it's just clearly a massacre. We, right. we know that to be a cruelty, but how do we talk about this slow motion kind of cruelty there's another poem in another section of um 
to tread the streets now paved over my father's house and to be held up at the checkpoint between my village and what's left of our groves of lemon and olive razor wired and identity card yeah, mm. yeah. um anything and so yeah sorry go ahead no. i was just gonna say you know like uh you know everybody's politics and worldviews are different my my hope <laughs> I, it's almost impossible to imagine but you know i i consider myself something of a progressive which to me means that I believe that the present is not as good as it could be and that we humans as agents and actors in history and in politics can make things better. And so if I held simply a tragic or conservative view, I would just say, well, there's nothing that we can do. But I know that that's not the case. I know that throughout history, people have acted as agents of history um, to make changes. And I, I think that there's a role that we can play in this. Um, and that's why I wrote the book Shrapnel Maps. I didn't write it to um, to, to write a sort of war and peace for uh, Palestine and Israel. I wrote it because I wanted to uh, have it enter into a kind of conversation that we're having about what a shared future would look like for Palestinians and Israelis. And, um, you know, it, it came out in 2020, like, uh, like both of our books did, and uh, sort of um, uh, you know, casualty of, of another kind of, um, global, uh, precarity. But, um, in any case, um, you know, like there's this poem in, in this book, um, right now we can't even hear these voices. We can't even see them, but they're there. All of these people who want something other than simply pure, exclusionary nationalism, which extirpates or erases or violently, uh, you know, removes the other, right? Uh, this is from Return 3. So three times at least, Nahida went back to the house that she grew up in, um, which was taken from her family after they left. It was Then it was a shop, more apartments. The shop was, quote, the Israeli experience. I asked the owner, what about the Palestinian experience? He became enraged, told me I knew nothing. One occupant allowed us into her home. We sat and reminisced about the house as though it were a common acquaintance. She thought the church had owned it. We talked politics, rising fascism, her family's escape from pogroms. I felt her suffering. In a different time, we could have been friends. When I got up to leave, I hugged her and she returned my hug. I don't know how we get back to that place, which is still its own tenuous place. But um, do you have any recommendations for what people who are interested in this could read or whether it's poets or histories or anything? <clears throat> recommendations to read. Um, well, I don't, I don't know how, so the, you know, I certainly have a list of things that, that I teach. I teach a course on Palestinian Israeli literature and the history text I teach is called Side by Side, mm -hmm. which is a, a co-written uh, historical uh, narrative, which includes both Palestinians and Israelis. And um, it, uh, um, so literally like on one side of the, the book page is the Palestinian version, and on the other side is the Israeli version. They're written by 
historians who were leaning into each other, but yeah. decided ultimately they couldn't write a single history text, which tells you a lot, I suppose. <laughs> but I think it's a really interesting text because it 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 offers us keen keen insights into both um, the kind of particularity of those narratives, but also the ways in which they overlap and in our an active conversation. So that's a that's a text that that I've enjoyed teaching. Um, and confusing my students with. Um, there's a, a very powerful novel called um, Wild Thorns, which I like quite a bit mm-hmm. uh, by a Palestinian novelist, which explores what the first years of living under military occupation look like uh, for Palestinians um, and features uh, one of the main characters who's um, a guy named Usama which is wild, of course, uh, Osama being a name that we can't not hear in a certain kind of context. But he is a revolutionary who's uh, sort of deeply misguided. And so that's an interesting book. This actual, this recent book by Adania Shibley, which came out called Minor Detail. Uh, this um, isn't, didn't she get like um, denied a prize or something because yeah. of the, yeah. Uh, there was- at, the Frank- at the Frankfurt Book Fair, she was sort of di- uninvited to receive some kind of a prize. Um, because of the in- Hamas attack, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I didn't know she was a member of Hamas, but, you know, that's <laughs> another story. Yeah. Um, yeah, so th- those three kind of immediately come to mind. Uh, there's so many great poets, and of course, there's so many great Israeli writers as well. Um, and there's some really interesting radical ones, um, but... You know, I, off the top of my head, I'm, I'm not just going to spill off names. I mean, it doesn't seem like a time that people are able to read literature. And yet I think we need it more than ever. You yeah. know. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you, Phil.